Every 68 seconds, someone in America is sexually assaulted. I am one of those people, and maybe you are too. If you're anything like me, you have burning questions, shame, guilt, and maybe fear weighing down on you at all hours of the day. Whether something terrible happened to you yesterday or 40 years ago, we all deal with the lasting effects of abuse and trauma of all kinds. To my fellow survivors, thank you for being here. Thank you for being courageous enough to just listen. To those who know a survivor, thank you for being willing to learn. To my listeners who aren't either of those things, thank you for supporting us by listening and learning. Every podcast episode I record has the possibility of being difficult for some of my listeners to hear, so be easy on yourself. Pick a time and place that suits you best, and don't be afraid to pause something and come back later when you found the courage to do so. I love you all, and I'm so glad that you're here with me today. Let's dive in. What's up, y'all? It's your friend Courtney with Every 68 Seconds. I hope you had a really great week. Um, Even if you didn't, I didn't have the best week. My um, family's dog of 10 years actually passed, so that was pretty hard, but um, I'm glad that we all have a new week with new opportunities and kind of a fresh start this week. So wherever you're at, uh, I hope that you're just hopeful for some fresh beginnings and I hope that you were able to listen um, last week to my first episode. And if you haven't, I would highly recommend that you just go back and take a listen because it's, it's really like laying the foundation for the whole podcast. And I talk a bit about my own story with my sexual assault as well. And I kind of talk about like who I am and yeah, all that good stuff. So last week, on the first episode, we talked about reasons that survivors of abuse of all kinds tend to stay in denial. Um, and I went through all of these different reasons that I've noticed in my own life and my own experience, but that are very common for survivors of sexual abuse and different kinds of abuse. So I mentioned a little bit last week this idea of the perfect victim. And I wanted to go a lot deeper into that myth that is out there that makes it a lot harder on victims and survivors of sexual abuse specifically um, to come to terms and also report because of these kind of ideas and myths about what the perfect victim looks like. And if you could see me, you would see that I'm using quotation marks for the perfect victim because obviously it doesn't exist. And there are so many different ways that sexual assault occurs and different victims that it happens to. So yeah, um, I've noticed, and I think everyone kind of notices, I hope at least, that there's just this kind of common belief about what the perfect victim looks like And it pains me to say this, but I personally had this kind of same belief about the perfect victim before I was sexually assaulted. And I just, when I would think about rape or sexual assault, I would just think, you know, I mean, it's like a girl that gets taken by somebody, like a random evil criminal or something and it's really violent and the the victim fights back and says no and 
um, can't get away and all that kind of stuff. And that was kind of my idea of what sexual assault looks like. And I think maybe that's like perpetuated by movies or TV shows or something. Cause I don't know where else I would have gotten that idea, but it's definitely something that I think still exists in like society today, like this whole myth about what the perfect victim looks like. And it definitely was, uh, kind of proved to me that this is the case when I did a lot of research for this pod, uh, for this episode. And the first thing I kind of want to go over is the actual definition of sexual assault, because honestly, this definition should trump like all of the different myths that are out there because it's very broad. Like it leaves, it kind of leaves the door open for so many different kinds of situations and different like people that can be sexually assaulted and yet people still put these myths out there and these kind of like I'm not sure the word but qualifications is probably a good word to describe what people put onto victims Um, they have to fit into this box basically so the actual definition of sexual assault Sexual assault occurs when a person is forced, coerced, or tricked into sexual acts against their will or without their consent. So I even went deeper and I found the definitions for the words force, coerce, trick, and the phrase against their will. Because I think even those words, we don't always understand the actual definition of it. Like I personally had experience with that. Um, And I'll kind of go into a story about that after this. But first of all, the definition of force is to make someone do something against their will. That's it. (laughs) Coerce, to persuade an, an unwilling person to do something by using force or threats. And trick, a cunning or skillful act or scheme intended to deceive or outwit someone. And then the phrase against their will, contrary to a person's choice or desire in a particular situation. So obviously, like it, it's, it should be very clear what sexual assault is based on these definitions. Um, and this kind of goes into the myths about the perfect victim because people almost add to the definition and make it seem like, oh, well, only if this was the kind of force or only if the the person was doing this or if they weren't doing this and stuff like that. So a little story. Um, after I was sexual, sexually assaulted, I told a few people, um, two of them being my parents, and they flew out. I was very, I'm very blessed and gracious to have um, parents that really cared and like believed me and came and flew out to where I was living because we were across the country from each other and my mom made an appointment for me to go to the doctor and I really didn't want to go because I was terrified of kind of the procedures and all this stuff because I was I was only like six or seven days or yeah actually it was probably like five or six days after my sexual assault um but I went anyways kind of reluctantly and the honestly the experience was really great I went to Kaiser so that's kind of cool um it, it it was very good experience. Not that it was great, you know, like having things checked out down there, but, um, yeah. So the nurse asked me if 
the guy that hurt me, obviously, or sexually assaulted me was forceful or if he used force. And I said, honestly, like, no, like he didn't threaten me with a gun or a weapon or anything like that. So like, no. And then she asked me, well, did you want it to happen? And I said, no. And she said, well, that's force. And I remember just, gosh, like tears just started rolling down my face because I mean, I was still like within a week after my sexual assault and like, I was still kind of in denial. Like I've mentioned in the last episode about what had happened to me. And because my experience wasn't this kind of, it didn't align with this like perfect victim myth in my head of like, oh, well there has to be a weapon or like, you know, like super violent, whatever force. Um, and although that, that does happen, obviously it's not the most common thing. And so, yeah, I, I just remember thinking, wow, like, I guess I was forced and I, I just, I had the wrong definition of force in my head. So that's why I wanted to go over the definitions for all these words, because I think if everyone knew those definitions, they would be like, okay, so this is much more broad. Like it, it applies to so many more situations than maybe we think it does, you know? Um, and just to kind of put it out there, Weapons like guns, knives, and other kinds of weapons are only used in 11% of rapes. Um, And that's, I mean, that's a significant kind of number. Like, it's not in the ones or twos, but, like, that's not very many, right? Like, we, in my head, I thought, oh, well, in order to have been sexually assaulted, there had to be, like, a weapon or something like that. Um, And that's obviously not the case. So... Going into the myths about the perfect victim, I have 15 of them, so I'm going to try to go through them quickly, Um, and I have some stats attached to some of them, and I'm sure there's like so many stats out there for all of these, but I truly just don't have the time to go into like 15 different things and um, find all that stuff, so I found stats for like things that were easy to find stats for and like were most impactful, I guess. So <clears throat> the first myth is that the vic- the victim must realize their assault immediately and report it right away. Um, and that, I kind of addressed that honestly in last, week, uh, last week's episode. I mean, I definitely didn't realize that I was assaulted immediately. Like it took me not very long, maybe compared to other people, but it took me about six or no, five days or something like that to realize that it was assault. And then, of course, even longer for me to believe like that it really was, you know, because it I mean, I was it was told to me that it was assault, but it took me a while to really realize it. And then I didn't report it until almost two years later. So, I mean, that's a significant amount of time. And there's some people who don't report it till much later than that. And it doesn't mean that it never happened. I mean, there's so many reasons that people don't report right away. There's so many fears that go along with that. And I, I covered a lot of those last week, so you can kind of go back. Or if you've listened to last week's episode, you can kind of relate those to each other. Um, secondly, a myth about the perfect victim is that they must be really emotional and distraught when they're telling people or reporting it or whatever. And I mean, I was definitely emotional when I reported mine, and I, it was kind of like surprising, but even then, like there was so many points of it where I thought that I would be more emotional and I was just so like serious about it. It was so weird. Like there was just no emotion. And there's, I'm sure there's so many people who report it 
and maybe they're angry and so they show anger or maybe they're completely numb and they so they don't show any emotion at all. Um, there's so many different emotions you can feel related to sexual assault. And so there's just really not one way that somebody has to react emotionally, right? And yeah, I think that's definitely like a specific myth that some people believe. I don't know if it's a very common one, but I read about it in an article and decided to put it in here because you probably would assume that somebody reporting their sexual assault would be super emotional and that doesn't always have to be the case. And it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Um, the third one is that the victim must be attractive. And I didn't even think of this one, but I read it in an article and I was like, what the heck? That's just honestly crazy to me. Like <laughs> you have to be attractive in order to have been sexually assaulted because otherwise nobody would want to. I was like, bro, like, do you even understand the perpetrator's mindset? Like, I don't know. And probably because I've done more research on this than most people have. So I know that that's just not the case. And like, I understand a little bit more about what an abuser's mindset is. It doesn't really, doesn't seem to really matter, honestly, um, for most of them. So that's one that I was kind of like, that's so dumb. Anyways, number four, they have to remember every detail. So this is like, a little annoying to me to read and I and I know that this is definitely a common one that is believed like if you I mean you hear this all the time in media like when somebody goes to report something and maybe it's been a while and they don't remember everything and it's kind of fuzzy luckily police are kind of understanding this more nowadays but I know I've read some stories like about police being upset with a, a victim of abuse because they don't remember every detail. Maybe they'll call them later and be like, oh my gosh, like I just remembered that he had a gun or whatever. Like I was just um, reading an article about that and the police were upset with her because they're like, dude, that's a really important kind of part of it. But she didn't remember because it was so like the experience was just so traumatic. And I'll definitely go into um, this subject deeper in another podcast episode where I kind of go into how trauma affects the brain and like the memory and stuff like that, which is one of my favorite things since I studied psychology and like neuroscience and cognition are my favorite subjects. But anyways, definitely don't have to remember every detail. And often you don't like it. I feel like it's probably most often that the victim doesn't remember every detail, you know? Um, and I know for me, I definitely, especially being almost two years later, like I didn't remember every detail. And there was times, luckily in my experience with the reporting process, like they were very understanding of that. But I know that not everybody is. And so number five um, is that they must know the perpetrator. Or sorry, they must not know the perpetrator. Um, and the stats that came from this were honestly kind of sad and a little surprising because in my mind when I was thinking when I was kind of explaining like my own beliefs before I was sexually assaulted and like my own beliefs of about these myths I think in my head like rapes and sexual assault happened to people by somebody they just didn't know and it was like kind of a random like kind of like if somebody robs you like that that's kind of my belief that I had was like oh it's the same thing as somebody that gets robbed you don't really know the person that robbed you that kind of thing but unfortunately the stats are um, almost 95% of child victims know their sexual abuser whether it be a family member or 
an acquaintance of the family or something like that, which is just so sad. And then eight out of 10 rapes um, in general are committed by someone known to the victim. So that's more of a general stat. But the I wanted to include the one about child victims because, gosh, that just, I mean, dude, like sexual assault is terrible anyways, but a large majority of child victims are abused by like a family member and somebody they know. And that just makes me so sad. Um, ugh, yeah. So anyways, number six, they must have never had sex with that perpetrator before. So this was one I definitely read an article as well. And, um, it was kind of like related to people that are in relationships with somebody and like they've had consensual, consent, wow, consensual sex with somebody before but then there is an instance where it's against their will and that is assault. But, you know, people think, oh, well, if you're with somebody or you don't have to be, I guess. But most of the time when you've had sex with them before, you're in a relationship with them. And this can happen in marriage, too, which I feel like some people don't agree with. But it, it is definitely true. Like, just like the definition of sexual assault says, it's just, you know, they're forced into that against their will. And that can definitely be in a marriage or any kind of relationship. Um, And so, yeah, just because they've had sex with them before does not mean that they can't be sexually assaulted by that person. So number seven is that they must fight back against the perpetrator. And I did a little bit of research on this one as well. Um, Nearly 50% of victims report extreme paralysis. And this is from like a HuffPost article in 2017 so it's a little older, but I still wanted to include it. I couldn't find a more like recent stat, but still like that's a huge, that's, that is a huge uh, portion of victims, right? 50% of them had this kind of case of paralysis, meaning they just couldn't move. Like they literally, and I had this experience for sure um, in part of my sexual assault where I just eventually stopped even trying to like fight against it, you know, um, and like move hands away or whatever. And it wasn't even like, like extreme or like, um, what's the word like aggressive or anything like that either. It was just like, you know, trying to move hands away or whatever. And then at at a certain point I just stopped and I was experiencing that paralysis. So, um, yeah, just because, a victim doesn't fight back does not mean it wasn't assault. Number eight, they must say no before or while it's happening. So this can be a little bit of a touchy one. And the reason is people are like, oh, well, if they didn't say no, then did they really like express that they didn't want it? And, and I mean, I just don't truly understand that after having experienced mine, like my, my experience, I, I did use the word no several times before and during it. And he just didn't care obviously, um, or didn't believe me, I guess. And, but I do know that there are people who are assaulted and don't say no, because there's so many reasons. Like you fear what the reaction will be from the perpetrator or you are paralyzed, like you don't, you can't even speak, you know, like you can't speak, you can't move, um, things like that. And there's so many reasons why somebody will feel like they can't say no or, um, don't want to say no in that moment. 
I mean, think about if you had a gun to your head or to your back or whatever, like you're not going to say no either, you know? Um, so there's a lot of reasons why somebody wouldn't say no in that situation. And just because they don't say no doesn't mean that they wanted it to happen and does not mean that it wasn't assault. Um, number nine, they must want to punish the perpetrator afterwards. And I included this one because I definitely had an experience myself with this where I still cared about my perpetrator after it happened and I didn't want to like take him to court. I didn't want to like ruin his life or whatever. And I also down the road didn't want to punish him because I didn't want to see him in court. I didn't want to go through all of that. So it was also kind of like about me, I guess too, but there's a lot of reasons why somebody wouldn't want to punish the perpetrator. And this especially happens when it's within a relationship, right? Like a marriage or like a romantic relationship of any kind where they don't want to punish them. Um, and so that's a really common thing. And just because they don't want to punish them doesn't mean that it didn't happen, right? So number 10 is that there must have been bodily harm as a result of the rape. And I was kind of like shocked by this one, but I literally read about this lawyer who basically said that the girl in this whatever court case wasn't sexually assaulted because there was no bodily harm. I was like, what? Like, how does that make any sense? Because just like I said before, there's some instances where the victim doesn't fight back. There's no paralysis or there is paralysis. They don't fight back or whatever. And maybe the actual act isn't violent or aggressive in any way. There isn't going to be bodily harm from that, right? Um, so yeah, I don't even know how that's a myth, but apparently it is. And that does not mean it was an assault. <laughs> um, 11, they must have been asking for it based on their outfit or demeanor. And I guess this is a little bit of a different play on words, but I wanted to include it because it's a myth that a lot of people believe that if somebody was like sexually assaulted or whatever, they think they were, um, and, and those people's minds like, oh, well, they must have been asking for it, so it wasn't sexual assault because they were wearing this skimpy outfit or they were being flirtatious or um, that kind of thing. And ugh, that makes me so sick to even think about that because just because a, a person wears something that makes them look more attractive does not mean that they're asking for a sexual act to be done to them. Like what? It doesn't make any sense. And it takes all of the blame off of the perpetrator who never should have, like, it's just very obviously selfish of them to even think that. Um, but I could go on about that one probably forever. So I'll just keep move on. <laughs> Number 12, they must be sober. Um, and this one I wanted to include because there are a lot of cases, especially on college campuses. And I included some stats about like college campuses, or college students specifically, because um, alcohol tends to be more likely within sexual assault on college campuses. Um, so 43% of sexual assault events involve alcohol use by the victim, and 69% involve alcohol use by the perpetrator, which I thought was interesting. Like more, There's more perpetrators using alcohol in those instances than there are the, um, the victims. And I wanted to include this one as well because there's so many people who say, oh, well, she was drunk, so like that's her fault. Like she was drunk. <laughs> and I'm like, bro, what? <laughs> like she was incapacitated mentally. She she 
couldn't have truly said yes to this um, or made that decision because she was incapacitated. So that person never should have gone through with anything in the first place. And so, yeah, that I could also go on about that one too because it just makes me a little upset that people really think that if you were sexually assaulted, you had to be sober because if you weren't sober, it was your fault. <laughs> um, number 13, they must cut the perpetrator out of their life after the abuse. And for me, this is also relatable because right after, like literally two days after, actually right after the abuse, like I was messaging with my perpetrator thinking that I had wanted it, that it had been my fault, all these things. And he was kind of, you know, perpetuating that idea as well through text message to me and all that stuff. And then he even got me to meet with him two days later to talk about it and um, all that stuff. And it doesn't, none of that, like me continuing to talk to him for the next like five days. Cause after that I blocked him and after I had reported it to my work and stuff, I blocked him. But before all of that, I was still kind of in this denial about what had happened. And so I was still in contact with him and that doesn't negate what he did to me. Right. And it, it really shouldn't like, just because there's there's so many reasons that a person will continue to be in contact with them. There could be threats of violence if they cut them out. There could be so many different things. Um, but yeah, number 14, they must tell people about it immediately. And I that kind of goes a little bit with number one. But I also want to include if they tell too many people, they just wanted attention and it didn't really happen. Because I've seen this before where, oh, well, if they're telling, if they're posting it, or if they're telling a lot of people about it, then they, they must just be lying for attention that didn't really happen. And a lot of people, if they don't tell people immediately, then that must mean that it didn't happen either. Um, and yeah, that's just totally not the case. Like I said before, there's a lot of reasons that somebody might wait to tell people and it's your story, it's your experience. So really you can tell whoever and however many people you want to like that was one of the honestly like fears for me creating this podcast because I was so scared that people would think I wanted attention because I'm like sharing about my experience but I can tell you with complete honesty like the reason I made this podcast is because I want to help other people through this whole process um, in ways that I felt I wasn't really getting that specific help that I needed you know like I, I had these questions and um, all these like topics that I wanted to talk about with people but like I didn't I didn't have those resources and so that's what I'm trying to be for people is that resource right um, and then the last one is that they must be sexually pure and this is when I added kind of the end because I did read an article a little bit about how people that are like sex workers and I'm not sure the right term I don't know if that's like PC but um, people that are like dancers or strippers or like whatever people in the, in that kind of like, um, career or vocation, if they are assaulted, people literally assume like, oh, well, I mean, she must've wanted it. Like she's in this profession. Like she must've asked for it. Like she doesn't even get to really choose anyways. And I, and I was reading an article about that and I just thought that was just crazy. Um, and so I wanted to include kind of this idea that, oh, they must, they have to be sexually pure because if they're not in this way, like if they are in that kind of vocation or whatever, then 
Um, or if they're like sexually promiscuous, people will say, um, they'll use that term for girls that sleep around. I'm putting that in like quotations because when guys sleep around, it's like fine and it's actually like they're praised for it. But when girls do it, oh, like that's not good and I won't use the words that I want to use. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's in those instances as well when like, oh, they're sexually promiscuous, so they can't be sexually assaulted because they must have wanted it because of their behaviors or because of their vocation, which is crazy. So anyways, those are the 15 myths um, about the perfect victim that I wanted to share with y'all because I think Especially if I were to have heard this before I was sexually assaulted, I would have been like, oh, like I had the complete wrong idea of what a sex- what sexual assault can really be and how it can happen and who it can happen to and that kind of thing. And I really hope that that helps shed some light on, um, you know, the idea that sexual assault can happen to anyone and there is no specific situation or person that it can happen to you know what I mean um, and I wanted to go in to two examples that I feel like just really they're like real world examples that I think completely I guess align with this perfect victim myth and the first one is with the Harvey Weinstein is it Weinstein or is it Weinstein I don't really know but you guys probably know who that is. Um, but yes, so in his trials, and I'm not going to share all the names because gosh, everyone, everything would be so confusing. But uh, I read an article about some of the trials with some of the victims of abuse that he perpetrated. And there were two victims who were the quote unquote perfect victims. They acted really distressed afterwards. They told their friends about it. And it was this one time occurrence and they shared it with people, reported it, all this stuff, right? So that's like all the perfect victim stuff, like um, all that stuff. And then in the end of the article, there was another woman who came forward to share her story. Um, but her story is very different because she had this kind of professional relationship with Weinstein, Weinstein and she had previously agreed to meet him in his hotel room on multiple different trips and agreed to massage him, whatever that means. But that's what the, you know, that's what the article said. And she mentioned that she didn't want to offend him because he had a lot of power over her career. And the lawyers accused her of liking the power and using that power on purpose to benefit herself. So like she chose to do all these things. And once, once he later sexually, um, sexually assaulted her, nobody believed her because she had previously agreed to massage him. And that was something that she, you know, agreed to do. And I guess you could say it was consensual. In my opinion, she felt that she probably had to, um, because of this relationship in the workplace and like the power that he had over her career. And I think that was probably partly coercion. Um, but all that to say, once she was like, sexually assaulted in this specific instance no one believed her because she had all this other you know things with him in the past and everyone assumed and by everyone I mean like you know people reading about it and like the defense attorney and things like that 
they assumed that she was using sex and flirting and all that stuff to advance her career. And it was actually her choice to do this. And a lawyer actually completely chastised this woman um, and all women who don't take precautions, in quotes, um, in their relationships with men. And they end up leaving themselves vulnerable to sexual assault. Um, And I just thought that was so, I guess... Uh, insensitive to say it's very insensitive to say actually because it's really putting the blame on the woman or the victim in those situations where it like the blame should be on the perpetrator like just because there's a relationship with a man in the workplace or whatever place you are does not mean oh well that you should have been more careful because duh he's gonna sexually assault you like also what does that say about men honestly Um, and then the lawyer asked, if you make a choice to go into their home at the end of the day, what do you think could potentially happen? (laughs) Like what? And I just, I, I honestly want to know to my listeners who are not survivors, have you ever had these same thoughts? Like I, I personally can remember thinking some of these things in my own head before I was sexually assaulted. And in some ways, I'm thankful because I now understand the reality of it, right? I understand, like, all of the different things that go into sexual assault, you know? And it it's just so crazy. Like, I, that's why I created this podcast is because I know how my mindset was before I was sexually assaulted. And it's only because I experienced that that I can understand what the heck is going going on and you know, like, I think that's a huge reason why I blame myself too, because I went, I chose to go to my perpetrator's house the day that he sexually assaulted me. And so I thought, oh, well, that's my fault. You know, I shouldn't have gone there. And like, yo, he, he sexually assaulted me. And just because I went to his house doesn't mean he had the right to do that. Right. And that should be, it should be like common sense, but even I didn't believe that. Right. So Anyways, the second um, example I wanted to give, and I know I'm going over how long I wanted to go, but I feel like that's just going to be a common thing for this podcast. Um, The second one is a little shorter. Anyways, so there's two former Vanderbilt University football players who, sorry for the terms, but they gang raped an unconscious woman in a school dorm room. And I, I know that can, those words and all these words, honestly, that I've been using can be a little triggering which is why I hope everyone's listening to this in a place and a time that they can kind of, you know, uh, respect the feelings that come up kind of thing. Um, But I don't want to water this down because it is serious, okay? Like, this is serious. And, And I also want everyone to understand how these myths really do affect um, the outcomes of these things and the way that victims are uh, treated. So, This act was recorded on multiple cell phones and the brutal details were reported like in full. They were all reported to authorities. Um, The morning after though, the victim had no memory. She was unconscious. Like I said, she had no memory of the assault and ended up having consensual sex with one of the men involved. And she also initially refused to cooperate with the officials because she was told by the perpetrator that she had gotten sick in his room and he had to clean it up and he was basically making her feel guilty because he had to take care of her 
and she pretty much assumed like oh like she first of all didn't remember what happened to her and then she also was like oh well they they were mad at me and I inconvenienced them and so she didn't you know um cooperate with the officials immediately she eventually did but basically what was agreed upon was that um this victim wasn't actually assaulted because she after the fact had consensual sex with one of the men and I'm like wait a minute so this girl was assaulted by two guys and it was recorded on multiple cell phones which were turned in which is how they knew that it happened because she didn't even remember and people are doubting whether she was assaulted because she happened to have sex with one of the men after the fact that she didn't remember had assaulted her. And that this is just a whole other I like or example I guess of how this myth of oh well they've never had sex before or they don't have sex afterwards or whatever can be perpetuated, you know? Like they people think because she had consensual sex afterwards that means that the sexual assault never happened. And especially, it also perpetuates this myth that because she didn't remember it, it didn't happen, right? So that's kind of how these myths play out in real life and how they can actually affect the victim and how it keeps a lot of perpetrators from being um, convicted of their crimes. And to share some really sad statistics with you to kind of end this episode out of every 1,000 rapes 384 are reported to police 57 result in an arrest 11 are referred for prosecution seven result in a felony conviction and only six result in incarceration that is 0.6 percent on the other end of that, 89% of victims report some level of distress, including high rates of physical injury, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, and or substance abuse. And there's honestly, most, most of the time, there's a mix of all those things. <laughs> um, and I just wanted to kind of leave you guys with this comparison of 0.6% of perpetrators that don't go or sorry, that go to jail out of how many? Like out of a thousand rapes, only six of them, only six of the perpetrators go to jail. Like that is crazy, 0.6%. And 89% of victims deal with these effects of what has happened to them. Like no justice is being served pretty much. Like it's just incomparable, Um and I just think that's really sad. And I think, honestly, these myths have so much to do with that very low incarceration rate, right? And there's a lot of other reasons that people might not be convicted of these crimes. But I think these myths play such a big role that they're really just, they, they should not be ignored. And that's why I wanted to go over this perfect myth sorry, perfect victim myth um, in this episode. And yeah, I just, I hope that this has kind of opened your eyes. And for all of um, my survivors out there listening, I hope that you are seen in this because likely, more than likely, there are myths that I talked about that you might even believe about yourself. Like 
something um, like like the remember every detail, like because you don't remember every detail, you think that you weren't assaulted um, or because you knew the perpetrator like it was an assault <laughs> or because you didn't express all of these emotions and were really distraught when telling people like maybe you're just downplaying it. Maybe it didn't really happen or maybe it wasn't that bad or whatever you're thinking in your head or whatever you've thought in the past about your experience. I hope that these myths that I've explained can honestly break the myths that you have in your own head about your own experience. And for the people who are loved ones or maybe even you don't know somebody that has been assaulted, um, I hope that y'all have learned a little bit today and can have more understanding and more empathy and more compassion about the experiences that victims go through and, and understand that there is a much wider range of victims and types of victims and types of experiences that go through or that happen with sexual assaults than we might think. So next week, I want to go over the psychological effects of sexual trauma and um, even other kinds of abuse as well because I think I touched on that a little bit tonight on how the psychological effects can affect the memory of everything and affect the emotions that happen afterwards and all those things and I feel like it would be a really interesting episode for y'all to listen to especially if you don't have a psychology background you might not know what the brain does in these situations. So I want to go through all of that next week. So make sure to join me. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'm excited to share that with you guys. And I hope you have a great rest of your week. Hello, hello. It's me again. Uh, I wanted to just end this with a request from y'all. First of all, I would really appreciate some suggestions for future episode topics. I'd love to hear about what you would love to hear from me. And also, I'd really, really, really appreciate if you could share this on your social media accounts, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever. Um, share this because I know there's people out there who are just like you that could really benefit from listening to this kind of podcast. Uh, another thing I would really appreciate is if you guys could go on to Apple Podcasts and if you loved this episode and are excited to hear more from me, you could just put a review on there. Um, I would just really appreciate that because it would show Apple that, you know, I have a listening and people are interested in what I have to share. So yeah, thank you guys so much and I'll see you next week.